You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Break it down, Dada. Break it down, oh, break it down. 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 Let's make Yeah. All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. Um, I'm here now with in the in our offices. What I'm going to call our offices, but I'm really just piggybacking off of uh, two people that are kind of on my staff, and that's my assistant Reva, who works at a shared workspace, and my new producer for the Break It Down podcast. Who I'm going to introduce you to right now. His name is Justin. Justin, thank you for. Um, Letting me piggyback in your workspace. No problem. <laughs> Sounds great. We don't quite have a uh, bad Christian industry set up yet in a way that we have any any paid space at all. But I am piggybacking off this. We're at a really this place is hilarious to me. Just coming in here, it's like um, it's just a, it's super intimidating. It's like busy. It, it looks like a combination between the show Silicon Valley and Portlandia. Yes, that's it's, what it's like. It's here. like a it's like a playground for adults where they sometimes do work. It, it doesn't look like anybody is serious or anything I ever envisioned a business person or a wealthy person or you know a really professional person would ever be. It's bikes and dogs and gamers and it's like a, a million startups in one building and it's it's completely intimidating because the sense I get is every single person here is wealthier and smarter than me. Yeah, and maybe. They're not. Maybe it's a front. Maybe they all are just posers that pay $300 a month to come show off and put their logos on doors. And I don't know what it is, but it freaks me out being here, to tell you the yeah. truth. You never know who's next to you. It could be the next Mark Zuckerberg. It could be. Or it could just be a guy who likes to play ping pong. Well, I feel like a complete screw-up, uh, you know, DIY punk loser. Like, I feel like totally exposed walking around in here. I bump into people. I'm not really aware of my body. And when I'm walking through the halls, I know I'm a spectacle. So. You just gotta you gotta start walking around with your laptop in your hand. That that tells you that you're Walk the real deal here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I want to do some. We're gonna do questions today. Is that good? Yeah. Okay. We got we got a lot of questions. Okay. Now. I'm gonna depend on you to feed me the questions. I looked at some of them and wrote down a, a few notes. But uh, you can ask me whatever you like from from a list today. And then Reva's here. You can take notes, Reva. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Let's make an episode. <laughs> All right. Well, the, uh, the first question. Oh, sorry. Have... If you can hear ping pong balls in the background, that's the kind of thing these young tech people do yeah. uh, instead of their work. They're doing ping pong and brewing coffee and talking, going up down the hall. So you had to forgive if you hear that. Um, well, the first question we have is from Andy Othling uh, off of Twitter. He, uh, he wants to know what, what happens financially after a band breaks up. Does mm-hmm. revenue still happen? Does it dry up quickly? Where does it go? What happens? When a band breaks up, is there still revenue? Is there revenue, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, there is for for sure because the whole thing about being in a band is that it's uh, – the whole thing about being in a band is it's not – it's like multiple – it's a business where you go into multiple revenue streams anyway. Everybody that's in a band makes money from multiple sources. There's not one thing. Like my dad thinks, well, did you sign to a label and then they write me paychecks. You know, right. that's that's people don't really understand that you literally have to manage each part of your career. And so 
and then different phases and different times, you make different amounts of money from different things. So when you first start playing, um, even if you're a real band and people like your record and it's selling and you're on a label, uh, you may not be able to make any money live. You're not worth anything. You don't necessarily draw tickets right away and stuff like that. Even if you're selling records, sometimes it takes a while to develop, uh, to develop into where you can make money live. Um, and then for being as far as record sales you kind of don't really get record sales right away either you usually wind up signed and have an advance so you maybe get some upfront money which is usually spent immediately and reinvested and so there's almost no revenue at first except for you can go out and sell t-shirts so your first revenue stream is merch as a band in, in your life cycle you can start making money uh, and it's funny because your company really is a clothing line. That's the first way that the first thing you do is you've started your own clothing line for the first year of Emory. Um, we would could sell a thousand dollars of t-shirts a night and that. And so then that, that revenue stream continues for a long time. And then later in your career, people, everybody has your t-shirts. So you don't sell as many of them, but by that point, hopefully you can be a headlining act and prove your ticket draw and be worth money on that. So then the, uh, the tickets, and the merch are the main ways that you make money. And then the merch can kind of turn into a thing where it's like uh, you can have an online store that's doing really good or even be bought by a merch company, buy the rights to your likeness so they can sell T-shirts and try and distribute them and stuff like that. <clears throat> um, and so when a band breaks up, the, uh, there's still some other residual streams, and the other ones are like um, – Publishing, so publishing and royalties. A lot of bands don't make a lot of royalties from record sales because they're usually in the hole from advances. And so there's not a lot of that, but publishing is something that you can collect on your whole career and that and, and post-career whenever you get things like radio play, uh, streams online, even monetized YouTube stuff. Uh, so publishing continues on for sure. Uh, ticket sales obviously go away entirely. And then merchandise can still occur, but it does a lot less, obviously, if the band isn't active. Um, the, you, can, you collect some money from ASCAP and a few things like that, uh, but the money dries up pretty fast. So, for instance, um, you might get – we get checks still from our tooth and nail deal in publishing, and we get uh, royalties from internet streams and plays, and we get a little bit of money from ASCAP, which is if somebody in Australia plays our song – now, which they do, then we get seven cents at a time for stuff like that. So that stuff can add up to, I don't know, for even a band like us, it's hundreds. Our last royalty statement was like 1500 uh, for publishing, from residual publishing money. And then we got a $4,000 check earlier this year. Isn't that right? It was about 4000 on that last check. So th those things exist, but man, if you're not living, you're dying. So it's right. that money doesn't amount to anything you said the word advanced a couple times i feel like most people don't understand that if you're not in a band mm -hmm. uh i think the easiest way to kind of think about that is it's a loan right. that either the record label or the publishing company will loan it's a you loan money. that you're intended to never pay back yeah it's <laughs> what you, it is you, and everybody knows that going in yeah that's you pay it, it is. if you pay it back then you start splitting the money yeah with whatever the percentage is and if you don't pay it back you don't. You're not financially obligated to right. pay. Right. So adv advances are just greasing the wheels. So what what they'll do is a, a label will give you. Let's say in our first tooth and nail deal, real small deal, we signed for several records, and I think we got eight thousand dollars. And then we buy. And then instead of putting that, instead of saying that's earnings for Emory, 
we buy a van, we buy a trailer, and we get out on the road. We buy gas, go to the first tour, buy the first round of merch mm-hmm. to go to the first tour that we're on. Glad to do it, happy, but it's not pocket money anyway. Yeah. And then by the time the next record comes around, you have an advance, but sometimes it gets rolled into something like a fund, and you need to buy new gear, and now we're buying in-ear monitor systems, and we need a bus for Warp Tour, so the advance might go to that. So the label's giving you the money knowing, it's kind of greasing your wheels a little bit, knowing that you're going to reinvest it in the career for the records that they're going to sell and then by the time they do that and then spend a bunch of marketing money you're never your small percentage that you get back of that is probably never going to recoup in a way that you're going to get paid ever right. really again but that's that's okay i mean that's just the way the way that business model works the record label just kind of seeds you money to get up and going as right. a business to keep to start generating money on right. the road T-shirt sales, and but by design, they give you an amount that they feel safe about, and then they want to that you know. Typically, if you were going to get close to recouping, where they were going to have to start paying you, it's better for them to say, "Well, why don't we do some more marketing?" You know, so they, it, it, the design is kind of to keep you in the hole because the the label would way rather pay marketing money to grow the record sales in their label than they would let you have it back in your pocket. But right. you leverage that and all that marketing money and everything else to build your career and build who you are and. And do everything. And the, the most, and this is kind of, you know, a little bit more vague, but really the the best thing that you have after a band breaks up is some kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe personal capital or something. Like uh, the fact that I am that guy from that band is a, a valuable thing that is residual in a way. So if I go into a meeting or people find, oh, I, I used to listen to a band called Emory, I was like, yeah, well, that's me. So if I'm in a business meeting or uh, getting mm. intro, you know, introduced, I suppose if I was divorced and like looking for chicks, that would come in really handy too kind of a thing. <laughs> but yeah, so that, that, that's the thing that's, that is, is uh, kind of a, a, an interesting, not, it's not a physical revenue, but it really kind of directly re- relates to things you do after a band. If you've had success at something like that, it does go a long way. But the money doesn't carry you any. I mean, if you were 10 times the size of us, Metallica's Black Album still sells thousands of copies a week. But, you know, a band like us, if you're not there, nobody's buying your shirts. Nobody's doing anything if you're not right there with it. And then by the time you pay bills, do anything, if you just have a bank accountant and an accountant and then you have to split it up with band members and former band members, thousands or hundreds of dollars is, is nothing. So if you're not living, you're dying. Yeah. If you're not yeah. growing, you're shrinking and it's nothing. Right. That's a that is a really in-depth look at it because at the end of the day, you know, it's like, you know, it's bad to say, but it's like every business, you know, you have to continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Well, the next, uh, the next question we have is uh, Steve uh, Schaefer. Um, he wanted to know, could you have a viable business as a band giving all your music away for free? You know, in today's music market, you mm-hmm. know, things are different. Record sales are down. What if you gave it a wall, gave it all away for free? What would happen? Well, Steve, I like that question because it's clearly where where a lot of people are thinking, and especially when you talk about podcasting and music and the overlap and stuff and the territory we're playing with is I will I'd like to say yes, although I'm not aware of anybody that's doing it. Uh, it's also a little complicated because, like I said, you make money from multiple sources. So theoretically, if you could give away enough music then you could you have plenty of opportunity to monetize other ways. So theoretically, yes. And like I said, bands don't make much money from their album sales if they're on a label or something anyway. Mm-hmm. So if somebody told me, hey, Emory could sign to a label, uh, they're going to sell or give away millions of copies and you'll never see a dime, I would say, sweet. I'm going to figure out how to make a ton of money off of this because we'll have millions of fans 
which we have tens of thousands of fans. So if we could get millions of fans for free, even if we didn't get a dime from them on selling the music, there'd be a tremendous amount of ways to, to make money from them. Um, or not, not just from them, but just tons of ways to make money when you could grow your, your audience and your platform because you could start to do things like just make very small amounts of money. And um, I, we like giving stuff away. Like the, the, the podcast, podcasts are free and we make money on them. So really there's probably new models that are going to be developed in the future, which are if you can give things away, what would you take like the best band CD ever if it was streaming online and maybe there was an advertisement between the second or third song, but they've dedicated that they'd always make their album free. You could that's that's kind of like podcasting and have an ad to fund the thing, and you don't have to crowdfund it. You don't have to take money from anybody, but right. you know, on the streaming playlist, there's an ad between track three and four, with, and it says, "Yeah, the reason this is free is because you have to listen to this ad real quick." Well, that's a model. It's like you know, like anything. So that that's a possible one. Um, doing things like fan clubs or recurring monthly money would be a great idea if a band can figure out how to do something that really delivers that to their audience, but. The short answer is tons of ways to make money if you have a product or something that is worth that is worth having um, to a lot of people. And the last thing I'd add is, oddly, even if you're giving something away for free, that doesn't mean it's easy to even give away, which is insane. But if you think about it, how many times somebody come up to you at the mall and say, hey, man, check out my hip-hop CD. It's free. I'm going to give it to you. I don't want it. <laughs> you don't want it. So, I mean, if, if something doesn't have a perceived value, you can't even give it away. There's something to be said about that, too, because as, uh, you, know, you know, I'll admit it, I've downloaded CDs, I've downloaded albums, but I don't think that I've ever downloaded something and never mm -hmm. paid a dollar for it and had it been memorable in my right, life. Right, right. It has like to have at least a perceived value. There has to be a perceived value. It's like when you're a kid and you save up your allowance money and you go out and buy something, like you keep that in pristine shape. And mm -hmm. if it's music and you, you, you spend that money on a CD, you're going to tell four or five friends about it. Right. If it's free, the perceived value is low. Do you tell people about it? And if it's so good that you do tell people about it, you'll probably find a way mm -hmm. to, to, to right. throw money into that. Well, it's really shocking because everybody thought, well, with piracy and downloading, if it leaks, it's going to be out there and everybody's going to have it. I wish. Right. I wish everybody shared, leaked it and everybody had it. That would be a good thing. Sometimes when we give away music, we can only, we, we, we say we're doing a pay what you want giveaways free or whatever it is. And then we don't give away as many as I had hoped to give away for free, even though all you got to do is download it. And I wish we could give away more, which is what a podcast is. I wish we, I could give this episode away 10 times more than mm -hmm. people that are going to take it for free now. So it's really in the future, it's going to be all about making viable, awesome art and entertainment, and then you can figure the rest out. Yeah. Um, well, you know, you, you did mention the podcast, which is a pretty good segue into our next question. Um, you know, we're obviously not recording this in a professional studio, mm -hmm. um, but uh, Eric Jones from uh, from Facebook wanted to know: Do you think home studio recordings can compete with studio studio recordings? So, um, you know, this is a little bit different these days with the fact that yep. every Apple computer, you know, has the capability of recording audio. Am I going to get all music questions? Is that all I am? I, I have to, other we, interests, you know. I understand to, people know me as a musician, but don't you understand? I'm trying to break out of that. <laughs> I'm not an expert on much, and I'm not right. really even on this. So I understand that, but it sounds like a lot of music this be, questions. This will That's be probably okay. the last music question. Oh, cool. Until another one comes up later. Okay. Um, home recording versus studios is, is it like ask the, the pure question the, the pure time. question is what do you th or do you think home do you think home studio recordings 
can compete with studio recordings? If so, how would one get uh, best get them public for distribution or booking as mm-hmm. part of shows? Okay, well, it definitely doesn't matter at all about studios or home recording. It's only it it really only matters for, uh, what you're trying to do and how good the art itself is, and that everything about recording it, it's sad because people want to know a bunch of microphone techniques and stuff like that. But I don't. That's not just not the way that. You know, I might be farther in that spectrum as I, I don't nerd out on gear, but that stuff just doesn't matter. What matters is the intention of what you're trying to do, and then if you can make it happen without screwing it up. So you can use gear to screw it up. You could you could record a really good drum sound in a really, really terrible sounding place and put the microphones in a funny way and you could screw it up for sure. Mm. But that doesn't mean that if you don't have if you don't ha- if you have experience, you could make anything work. I really believe I could make a, a, a good record with one microphone with a fifty eight at my house. I'm sure you could make I should do that for an experiment. Just make one song and only use one microphone and, and just use, use that set of tools. It's like playing a like when you play golf sometimes, people will do a game where they'll say, all right, all we get is a five iron. So you have to tee off with a five iron, putt with a five iron, chip with it. And then you just go head to head with a five iron kind of thing. It's something – and so you just play with – you can't compete with, you know, all the clubs. But really you can make that work. You just have to make the, the smart concessions and know how to adjust to that. So if you have a great studio, you make the best of it. And if you don't, you, you just do – you do what you need to do to get the results you need. So like on our last re- – album you're never alone we didn't go to any studio ever i mean we recorded the drums in matt mcdonald's garage and i paid him a couple hundred bucks and i mean it's it's just a garage like he calls it a studio but it really is just a garage with some (laughs) blankets on the wall and some uh free carpet on the floor and you know i want but so i wanted to make that the drums real dead sounding anyway so i said well let's go in a little garage and make it dead sounding we don't need to pay for the big studio with a big reverb brick wall and a thousand a day or 500 a day and then i brought, borrowed some some gear and microphones and preamps from places and we just took it over there and we muted the drums up anyway so it made good use of the space that we were in and i i don't think it would have been any different had we had a big budget or went to a bigger studio and spent more money and i don't think it would have been any better yeah. So, and it certainly has nothing to do with getting music out there. I mean, I guess on the other end, you can make it. You, what does Skrillex do? He don't need no studio. He just gives a, you know, make a garage band loop and sing over it. <laughs> well, <you laughs> Except know, for he doesn't even sing. I don't even, I mean, you can make it out of a loop and make music and put it out if it's, if, if you're really scratching people's itch of what they want to hear. And that's it too. I think more importantly than where you record it, how you record it, it's the content. If the content is something that people want, then it doesn't matter where it's recorded at because it's only it's only going to get better if people want it. Like I heard recently on another podcast with uh, a guy named Seth Godin, he said, "If you if you have a business, you have anything, tell ten people about it, and in two weeks, if fifteen people don't know about it, right. then move on to the next thing because it's not it's not scratching that itch. It's the the content is right, whether it's a business, a song, you know, just do something that people want, and however it's recorded, I think is irrelevant. Definitely." All right. So uh, we're, we're, we're not going to go with music for this next question. Okay. So shocking. Uh, so uh, Steve Schaefer um, had, had a really interesting question. Another Steve question. Yes. Uh, Steven. Steven, okay. Um, he said, what do you think the social science behind why Trump is annihilating in the Republican primaries? So, um, That's a funny question. Somewhat music related. Just kidding. 
Well, I don't, you know, I, I tell people a lot that I'm a political agnostic or I just don't participate or pay any attention. And that might kind of come in here because I don't feel like the Trump thing is, is because of, I mean, it, in every way, I do believe it's shocking, like it's a joke. Like it seems to be a big joke or uh, something you wouldn't have expected. I remember when my wife said he's running. I said, that's funny. Or it's like a joke or like Kanye saying he's running or something. It doesn't sound real. And then everybody's like, yeah, but it'll, it won't do this. It won't do that. And it's, it's astonishing um, that it is. But I, th- I think it's not so much about Trump and I don't think it's so much about conservatism. I think that the Bernie Sanders thing is also is similar. I think the, this is, we've reached some kind of tipping point where people are thinking like, okay, we're like post- politician so anything that's far enough outside i'm i'm actually ready to do something crazy or different so it's not it's not because we've become super conservative and we really hate muslims i don't really think that's what's driving it although some of those uh insidious elements are there i think i don't think we all want to be socialists so now we got bernie sanders it's really just people saying normal politicians i just can't uh, you know, every, we're just kind of getting over that and realizing people have been saying it. You've heard it for the last 10 years. Oh, all the politicians are bad. It's more of the same, more of the same. So now you actually finally have some option to express yourself as a, as a people and a culture and say, you know what? Let's do something different. And then social hypnosis and mass, what it fo- people following other people and right. celebrity worship and TV and all those and pop culture feed into it. But I think it's just a rejection of the status quo. So something's kind of interesting about that. It's kind of, val- it's kind of valuable, I believe, um, as a social experiment. I mean, I don't know anything about politics or what will happen if whoever wins, wins. But it's, I think that's what's going on. You know, there's also something to be said for the tools that we have available today. Like, you know, mm-hmm. anything Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump says, you know, can be broadcast to millions of people instantly yeah. for little to no cost. It might which, be a real dangerous thing. It might be a bad yeah. place, where I, but it, at least it's it feels like something different. So, mm. um, yeah, I mean, that could go on. For, I mean, that, that question could go on. Yeah, for I, I don't have any political <laughs> opinions, though. Um, note. So, this last question was from uh, a person that didn't want to share their name. Uh, okay, but coward. Uh, yeah, I, I, it, it's very controversial. They want to know what's the most helpful resource uh, for your business or professional career. What what for you? Mm, I don't uh, know what that would even would be like uh, looking for like a, a book or a, I'm not sure exactly what that's asking. But off the top of my head, I'm thinking the best resource is uh, I want to say for me, it's I'm always fueled by. Uh, interactiveness or engagement or other people or, or inspiration. So, like, I'm make, making fun of this place we're recording in, but I live in Seattle in the city because I know the most people here who are creative, smarter than me, intelligent, um, successful, not because they're important people, but because they're inspiring people. Because they, you know, the best resources. It's not, and it's not that I'm competitive and I want to out compete people or anything like that. I just say, oh, this person's doing that, and they just did it, and you can do that. And he thought of that, and he figured this out, and he's making this, and that's working for him. All that to me is just all like inspiring. So the more people I'm around and could have meetings with, I take meetings with people all the time for whatever reason and for no reason other than just to hear what they're doing. And if they're interested in me having to articulate what I'm trying to do, that's that's usually helpful. And so to be around other pe- creative people 
in that sense is very helpful. And then on top of that, of course, you, there are resources to literally ask questions from, you know, like what should I do with this or how should I do that or what worked for you when you were recording this or how did you handle this financially? I mean, there's people in in a big city that are that way. So I'm not against the country, and I grew up on a real small nothing, dirt road. And uh, I like it, but I'm much more fueled by the people and stuff in the city. That's the best probably resource. And I think for anyone, regardless of wherever you live, you're the sum of the five people that you're around the most. So yeah. if you want to change you know, whatever direction you're going in life, you know, find people. Find mm-hmm. people that are doing something that are, that are interesting to what you're doing. And that's going to kind of spark, whether it's professional, whether it's music, it's going to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to stay away from music for a little bit. Um, maybe come back to it in a bit. But uh, oh, I don't mind. It's the thing I probably know the best. So I know, but sometimes getting out of your comfort zone is uh, yep, is always mind. awesome. So um, Daryl Lowry had a question about investing. Oh boy, <laughs> he said, "What's the best way to get started?" Uh, in investing your money. Okay. Well, quick correction there. Daryl is a girl. I think because of how you spell Daryl if you're a girl, but I know her. She lives in uh, Texas. Oh, She's sorry, super Darryl. nice, a BC club member, and comes to all the Emory shows. Thank you, Daryl. Um, but what's the question? Uh, Daryl wants to know what's, what is the best way to get started in investing your money? I am not an, an licensed investor. I do a little bit of investing, and I like finances stuff, but I, I'm cert, certainly not. Um, I'm going to say that it doesn't – I'm not going to give any direct financial advice, but I will say doing investing, if, if you can clear money out and actually make the mental commitment to invest, you are certainly on the right track. I mean, most people don't. Invest anything they set they live paycheck to paycheck, or um, they squirrel the money away and are terrified to, they would never risk it. They think, oh, buying a stock or even having a four hundred one k is like playing roulette. What if I lose it? And, you know, if you're totally fear based, or if you live on maximum income or in debt, um, those are bad things. So if you have some money, if it's five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars in cash that you can invest, you're in, that's a really good step and you probably can figure it out. Of course, you should, my first thing is, uh, I would say you should diversify. So whatever you pick to invest in, look to at least split it a couple of ways. If you only have a few thousand bucks, you don't have a lot of choices, but the the higher you get up from there, you just want to make sure you're in different things to protect yourself, whether it could be real estate or stocks or real safe investments or in companies or something like that. And I, I think it would be, Horrible to not point out that if you're doing well, it, one of the best places to invest might be in yourself, like in like furthering your skills or education in a practical way. Mm-hmm. That it, it was it, that's always a, a good bet if you can make yourself more valuable. You shouldn't be ashamed of spending money or time uh, on those things. And I, that's that's what I wish I did. You know more of of like for instance. Um, I wish I cleared out time and paid for uh, like an improv class or a speaking class. I think I could do podcasting better. So that's what that's something I would like to do. I think that'd be a decent investment. Something that'll make your skills sharper and more valuable, regardless of what happens to a, a market or right. a, a real estate or whatever. Well, I got a couple of side notes to that. One, uh, what I read online from Mark Cuban like eight years ago was really helpful. He said if you have any sort of debt. 
just pay that off first. Yeah, because people course. don't think about that. But if you want it, if you want an automatic ten percent return on your money, don't pay ten percent in interest. You know, pay it off as quick mm-hmm. as possible, and that's the quickest way to save money and invest. Yeah. Um, and the second thing is, there's this cool app. I was just talking to someone this morning about it uh, over coffee. It's called Robinhood. Yeah, Robinhood's you, awesome. You can yeah. you can you can dabble in. Buying a stock, it's free, right? It's free yeah. for every trade, so you can take fifty dollars and buy one yeah. share of Apple, and and you're not going to pay a ten dollar transaction yeah. fee. Which Devin's is, using that. I have a different one that I use, but Devin's been used. I told Devin to use Robinhood. He's been using. It. He loves it. And it's free. You can do no, uh, like I don't think there's minimums or, of no. what you put in. It yeah. attaches to your own bank account, so you don't have to like get a brokerage account it's, somewhere. It's but, as yeah. easy as buying something online. Sure. And, and uh, you know, the other thing I tell people financially is, and I don't have any money, by the way. I'm not a successful investor and don't really have any money, so I'm not anybody to be listening to except for um, definitely have some cash. You should have several months, maybe six months of, of stuff money, money that you can access liquid. Of don't You don't need to invest or lock into something until you at least have several months of, of cash reserves that you could spend. Um and then on top, then after that, you know, go ahead and give it a shot. Great, you're on your way. Um, next question, uh, Matthew Reiner. He wants to. Uh, this is gonna go back to music. So, okay. Uh, this is a little. This is a longer question. It says why? Do, Say it in the mic there. Uh, why do extended tertian chords make people feel melancholy? Ter- no, that's a uh, tertian. Tertian. tertian oh. uh, you'd say tertian or tertian there, I suppose. Okay, so why do extended... It means chords built in thirds is what he means, but say okay. that again. So why do extended tertian chords make people feel melancholy? What characteristics do those <laughs> chords have that a normal triad doesn't, and how can you make a chord progression to bring out that feeling in people? Okay, well, we'll do just a little bit of music physics here. And explain what chords are, how they're made. So, if you play a note, if there's a note that exists, it's or it's really a frequency. And so, there's a fundamental frequency if you play it, like it oscillates at 440 hertz. Well, also in the real world, uh, those there'll be overtones, uh, which are partial frequencies that at a higher mathematical frequencies that you can almost hear or hear sometimes in uh, in on top of the fundamental note that's played there. So like if you hear a bell ring or a piano string, you almost can hear other fainter notes that are in series with that. And that works out mathematically. And um, so the strongest overtone is a fifth, which was where the first music chords really were, was like Gregorian chant, monk stuff, and like, I don't know, year 1000 medieval times whatever and so the fifth is the primary overtone so it kind of blends well and matches the the fundamental and then they started not even till the 16 1700s really using uh three note chords which are triads and uh so now you've got and so the overtones also interact with each other so the more dense a chord gets the more overtones are there and the and the more in a way it's not pure so it's a little and technically, it's a little more dissonant. So even when you play a major chord like C, E, G on the piano, um, that chord is built in thirds, and it has the root, third, and fifth. And so then all the you know overtones and fundamentals make a sound, which is called a sonority. And in that case, it's a major one. Um, you have major, minor, uh, augmented, or diminished triads. And so we've gotten used to that in Western music. And then through Baroque, 
to uh, Renaissance to Impressionistic, Romantic, Impressionistic music, they started kind of adding more and more things that would sound natural to the ear. So it, it builds on itself. And so they started adding a, a, a fourth notes to chords, like it'd be a seventh. And then if you add another note to a chord, that would be a ninth, and then 11, and then 13. And so the way I look at it, at least, is uh, it's, it's kind of like jazz theory that, that bears this out. But um, chords have to be described in our music system as in thirds. So there's... so. That's why you one, three, five, seven, nine, eleven, thirteen, and then alterations of those. And so what he's asking when he says extended chords would be like you play a C E G and then you would add a B natural to that. Now we have a major seventh chord, or we'd add a D natural to C E G D. So that would be a C with a nine on it, or add nine to that. Which could be seen as a wrong note that just simply doesn't belong in a triad. But if in context, it's there and is forced and becomes accepted as part of the chord with your intention or your analysis. Now you've got an extended chord, which is outside of triads, which are our typical basis for chords and, and sonorities that we discuss are triads. So what, so what in those chords, why do those chords make people feel melancholy? Why, why do certain songs make people feel sad? Well, it's because they're, they're more harmonically dense and, and they're dissonant. So that that you know like i'm saying so now if you have like the the overtones from a fifth and third stack up pretty well like octaves stack up really well then the when you start adding second and fourth and seventh scale degrees into a chord those harmonics man you've really got a lot of interference going on and a lot of really weird uh stuff like you can hear it beating against each other and, and it's, it's an unsettling feeling so i don't know exactly what goes on in the brain or whatever but extended chords are are mathematically speaking even uh literally more dense as far as what's going on in them and 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 have more what we describe as color so it, it gives it, it gives feeling so i love extended chords i almost always when I'm composing something or arranging something, throw out the boring kind of chords and try to, uh, uh, I'll throw out the fifth or even the root and try to deal with the third, the seventh, and the ninth just to see how it works. Or a sharp four is, is beautiful on, on in some instances. And I try to see if that can work in the arrangement uh, and see if I can force people to hear this colorful chord and, and it makes you feel a different way. And for me, I'm always just trying to avoid playing music that people can hear it and go, yeah, I know what that is. It's a strum in a G chord and a C chord. So I, that's part of it. I'm trying to do notes different and force people's ears somewhere. And extended chords is one of the, is one of the ways that I you know, almost always do that. And I guess that's because I like you know, moodiness or I like the melancholy uh, vibe uh, myself. Uh, what else is in that question? How can you make a chord progression mm -hmm. bring out that feeling in people? So, mm -hmm. uh, Well, chord, chord progression is a whole nother can I mean it's the same thing as in um, it's all about context and there's uh, you know historically chords that were used in certain patterns that are deemed to be strong like the one chord back to the five chord back to the one chord very strong and then less strong but still good would be the four chord to the five chord but in time we've seen those th those what we've described as strong relationships become boring or normal or predictable and so in in any form of music once something becomes normal or predictable that has to be broken so then we wind up exploring weaker chord 
functions and, and uh, progressions that are not as comfortable or as strong as they would classically be seen, and that can achieve some of that effect of unexpectedness and tension and things like that. And, and so that's what I mean by it, it has to do with the context and what your ear is adapted to. Like uh, when the Beatles first came out and they were reviewed, they were criticized heavily for unresolved harmonies and not knowing what they were doing, but they did know what they were doing. They wanted the people to feel uncomfortable or different or more than different than they expected and you know so now we all have that in our background we hear all those things that the Beatles did and we can use them freely and then push that boundary farther put another dissonance on there so that's the way it works music develops over time to expand everybody's collective ear and we can take things now that we couldn't take before it's why my grandpa says it just all sounds like noise well he missed all the steps we did to get here from Buddy Holly to you know the new August Burns Red record he stopped paying attention somewhere in the middle, and he just thinks it sounds like noise. But had he gone all the way through the progression, he could understand the distances, the extended chords, the odd progressions, the vocal style. So you can push it, people to be uncomfortable, and then you and then you can build on top boundaries. of that. That's right. Okay. All right. Uh, all right. So next question is from Nathan Johnson. Uh, he he liked the financial breakdown from the last tour. Uh, it would be cool to hear a breakdown for a podcast. Like, how okay. much does it cost to make? Uh, how much do advertisers pay? Mm-hmm. How much uh, do you make um, if I actually buy from Blue Apron? Ah, well, you know, I like to do those transparent things. I feel confident and that it's good to share information and it doesn't threaten me at all. I will, however, have to be one step careful answering this one, um, and that's because Bunda, the bad Christian producer, and th- does our, is in charge of advertising all the stuff we do, would kill me if I commented directly on ad rates and right. revenues from that. So I unfortunately won't directly tell you that. But I'm going to do my best to right. uh, explain from my point of view what our expenses are and, and how it works out for us uh, individually. Um, Maybe a little background too because I feel like things have changed in the last you know six to nine months. Yeah. Like where did it start and where does it go now? Uh, so on Bad Christian, we make about half of our money from advertising and half of the money that comes in is from the club. Uh, and so let's talk about expenses next. Um, so BC is a mess. Like it's a big thing and we have a bunch of stuff going that the podcast is a part of and everything. So we have everything from like accounting, accounting software, uh, the hosting of the podcast itself, uh, banking fees, uh, b- bookkeeper. You know, it's some internal staff that just is in our global Mm-hmm. System, um, but podcast related, we pay a hundred and something a year for hosting. We don't get charged for bandwidth. It's not too bad. That's what a lot of podcasters go. Oh, I've got to pay for the hosting. Was well, a hundred and something dollars? No matter how many downloads you have, for the most part, it used to be different, but now that's where it is. Um, our biggest expense by far is editing. So our podcast is long, and we uh, put out like three hours or more a week, and from multiple locations and multiple files and interviews and intros and we have to put the ads in that we do and it gets really really complicated so we pay hourly um billy power is our podcast editor for that and so we we wind up spending mm-hmm. um i don't I don't know if i have it uh but it's got to be more than a thousand bucks i mean it's like um i i think we probably spend fifteen hundred dollars a month on audio and editing stuff with that show because of the volume and how often we're doing right. it. we spend a lot on that and then uh 
the we spend a, a good amount, 25% or so of the amount of money that we make in ads we pay commissions to. Uh, and that's how Bunda, who sells our ads, gets paid. He gets paid a commission on that. So he gets a good chunk of that and very well deserves it, manages all the ads and stuff like that. So those two things take up a huge amount of money um, from our budget. Uh, we pay like a hundred and something dollars a month for the app that we have. Uh, our hosting is probably pretty expensive, but like I said, it's probably a hundred hundreds a year at the most. Uh, we're always buying audio equipment and trying different mics and stuff like that. So it's not out of the you know ordinary. We'd have two or $300 a month and, um, Equipment purchases. Equipment purchases. And then when we, f- we fly, I went to Charleston last week to do, uh, just on our own money, to do a bunch of episodes together, and we had a guest. Um, and so we so I do, do flights on there and hotels sometimes. When we do the Bad Christian shows live, we make those free for club members and pay what you want for other people. So it, it we spend usually as much money or more to go do something like that. Right. And that's what we use the money from the club and stuff for so we can do the stuff. We also use the money to fund other BC ventures here and there. So when it's all said and done um, – we we spend like a, a real outfit here. We you know Reva gets paid here and stuff like that. So just for support, it just I don't know. We spend a lot of money because we reinvest it and keep growing the things we do. But at the end of the month, uh, Toby and Joey and I always try to see if we can get ourselves to make more than a thousand dollars a piece, and we are able to do that, and that is unbelievable. Like if we can make a thousand or two thousand, even sometimes we've made and put in our pocket in a month between the club, which has its own set of expenses and advertisements. So I'm very happy to say that's not a full time or nothing, but. Um, I mean, we're really able to make the podcast make real money for ourselves. I'd love to make, obviously, more. But right. it there's income that comes in, and I mean, I'm, I'm really, really glad to be able to do that. Now, the this show is, is peanuts. Like, I have some people that support, and it's, it really does matter. So I'm not saying it's peanuts as in small, but comparatively, mm-hmm. it's much smaller. We don't put as near as much in these other shows as, like, developing the club, and we're just at the threshold of getting ads. So if this show grows a little bit more and we could put some ads on it, that would be amazing because I can split it less ways than I do the other show. So I'm very hopeful for this show and some of our other network shows that they could get a little bit into the higher territories. But uh, it's hard to make a podcast positive Mm -hmm. return. Like it's not, it's not, so simple as you as you would think to do, and the expenses will can kill you depending on how much you want to put put into them. But so, but the people that do contribute to the Break It Down podcast that give seven and twenty dollars a month, that money is greatly appreciated. You can get it on my website. So this is I'll make this a plug for it. Please do support these shows. This money goes I, for the, uh, this show has expenses too, right. um, and almost no real income other than what you contribute and the people that shop through my Amazon link. That's the thing that's been the best for this show. It doesn't cost you anything, but people go to my website and save the Amazon link that you can click through. Mm-hmm. And then if you shop there forever, for the rest of your life, every time you shop there, I literally, we in this room are going to get some money coming yeah, in from a little that. bit of a taste from that. Yeah, and, it, and it's free. Like It doesn't cost you anything to do. So that's a really good way that any podcast can make money is is if the listeners can support it. That's definitely the best overall model. And advertising can be a nice bonus. But it's really about the club and the listener support. So thank you. And also, just support other podcasts. If there's a show you like, you should feel good about paying for it. I don't care about my show. Other shows you like, if they take donations or support... Just pay for it. You will enjoy the podcast more. You will like it. It's good information. If it benefits you... 
they will greatly appreciate it. It'll help them do artistic things in the world without big middlemen and companies. They'll appreciate it, and you will enjoy the show. You will feel like you're part of it and have contributed to it. I, I highly recommend giving to other shows. Yeah, Forget this it, one. Other shows. Give some money to if them. If you think about how much you pay for a movie yeah. for two hours worth of uh, entertainment mm-hmm. and podcasts or hours of entertainment, entertainment for, sure. you know... For you know, months and years to come. Yeah, so. well, it's quite efficient because the money there's not middlemen, it's not big companies and all those things like other media. I mean, the money that you support or contribute a podcast or any independent creator, music, anything that they really do get that money, and it is awesome. I mean, it, it really is an amazing thing that allows free communication that's untainted by corporate interests or, or whatever. So of course, we have sponsors, but it's not like they have anything to do with our message or care what we say. You know, It's nothing like that. So good. Thank you for that question. I get, got to give some plugs. Um, so the next question is from Bryant Winters. This is a quick one. Could be a long one. Depends on how you want to look at it. Um, he wanted to know, can a large enough black hole be created in a particle accelerator <laughs> to swallow the Earth? This was part of the hashtag at AskMattAnything. He also added that uh, the hashtag, uh, my mom says yes, but she's not a scientist. So <laughs> well, uh, I'm not a scientist either. I do like science. And if you're going to ask th- th- that much of a question, you're probably better off to go over to Ask Science Mike and not me. Everybody knows I'm not really. I'm, I'm, I like science. I read about it, but I'm not no super expert. However, I probably know more science than that guy's mom. So I, I'll give that a shot. Um, is my understanding that if a black hole is able to be created it would be just an absolutely nothing black hole, and it would immediately evaporate in less in the tiniest fraction of a second. So people at some point were alarmed or worried that, like at CERN, with the particle accelerator when they turn it on, it could create a mini black hole and then grow and grow and grow and swallow up the Earth and the universe or whatever. They're not stupid, the people that are running it there, but the amount of energies involved are just relatively... I mean, they're super high energies for us, but cosmically, nothing. So the, the, if they can make something that's even a temporary black hole, it evaporates immediately and is, is nothing. So you don't have to panic about them using particle accelerators, we don't think. We, that, it's not, we don't, we're not too worried about that. And the good news is if they actually do create one, we won't know. It, just don't the worry about it. The lights will just get turned out right. and it's over. Yeah, it, don't worry about it. <laughs> Speaking of black holes, what about those... Uh, Two black holes that collided, you know, some billion years ago. I tried to explain gravity waves on Bad Christian the other day, and I t- was completely unprepared and botched it. So I'm not even going to yeah. touch it. The, the title sounded un- sounded unbelievable until I heard the actual sound, yeah, and it, it sounded like a drop of water, which was pretty. Well, you know, those I do uh, those gravity waves that they're measuring are like a hundredth the width of a proton. Like that's how small the things are that are being measured. So it's, right. it's really insanely faint for something so profound but you know i'm gonna leave it alone i don't know next question another anonymous one this is pretty controversial i I would guess uh why haven't we been taught that low carb is the way to go um except within the past five years Hmm. if low carb is how our ancestors ate uh, when and why has it changed well i'm not if, if anybody doesn't know i'm doing ketogenic dieting right now i'm really interested in it i've done low carb stuff a lot over the years it's always been uh, effective to me and i gravitate toward it naturally i really like it but i am not an expert on it and i'm learning a lot more about it um this time i'm actually paying attention and to science 
of it and stuff like that a little bit more. But I'm not going to cl- make any real big claims about it or do any science on it. Now, am are we going to do? We are going to get some people on the show, though, right? We're, We're going to try and yeah. book some good food there, science there, people on, right? There's some experts in this field that we're yeah. going to get. So I'll be, I'm going to hold my tongue on to some degree um, for now. But I, and I'm also not. For instance, he's talking about the early our ancestors. Whatever. I, I don't even know anything about that either. That sounds like he's hinting at paleo, I suppose. So yeah. paleo is that. That's the idea that. Um, the primal people ate this way, so we should eat that way. But I, I'm not really that concerned with that. I, I really look at it from a biology standpoint. So I, I read about molecules and ketones and glucose and insulin and, and those things. So I look at it as the metabolic process. I'm not, I don't really care anything about diets that are named this or titled this. I'm just trying to understand the human body and how it works when it's burning fat versus uh, living off of carbohydrates. So the reason that low-carb diets are not more popular, in my opinion, my opinion is, and I've said before, that I believe in 10 years, definitely 20, but definitely probably in a, in a decade or so, I believe that what's considered a really low-carb diet today will be the, the normal thing that's like purported from government websites and the Heart, American right. Heart Association. I think those things will eventually be saying what we call a, a carb-restricted diet will be normal. And we'll look back at what we've been doing as, wow, why were we doing all of those grains and sugars? So um, essentially what it means is you cut out grains, you cut out sugars, and then... Well, real quick, too, you might want to explain to a lot of people, you know, if you have a sandwich and there's a piece of bread, uh-huh. uh, that piece of bread, those carbohydrates do get turned into sugar, into yes, glucose, course, which, right. which most people don't think about. Right. So yeah, an orange or a potato or Skittles, all those things, your body converts to sugar and, and very quickly. And the more quickly it does, the more it spikes your blood sugar, the more it raises insulin, all that stuff. But essentially, the way that I eat is, I, if, if you wanted to do it scientifically, you just break down the calories by protein, fats, and carbohydrates. And I eat... 30 grams or less of carbohydrate per day. And then the rest, I therefore must make up with proteins and fats. So it can be tons of vegetables. Essentially, all you're doing is trying to eat and get full without consuming grains and sugars. Mm-hmm. So, um, the, uh, but I, I'm sorry, to his question, he's asking why is this not bigger and why is it taking so long and what is. Now, I just had to say, obviously, it's counterintuitive. Yes. If you eat fats, you'll get fat. That people would, that's, that's like, that's the general Conventional assumption. wisdom, but that's not really the way that your body works. And so it's hard to kind of get over that mentality to think you're eating something fatty and you're going to get fat or you are what you eat or whatever. But your right. body breaks it down and, and the, the correlations are not that, are not that way. So there's, a, there's regulations and warnings about cholesterol that are being uh, redone and dropped. And we think we may have done a, a big damage to public health by having uh, high carbohydrate things, you know, high carbohydrates recommended, mm-hmm. you know, and it, for the purpose of avoiding fat. So now it's about eating good fats and stuff like that. So nuts and avocados and stuff like that. So also doctors are really, really careful because they're not going to tell you try something that feels or sounds extreme. So for instance, if you're pregnant, um, they'll say don't drink alcohol 
they might would tell you drink one. Sometimes they'll say you can have one drink. Well, mm-hmm. really, you probably definitely could, but they're afraid if they tell you you could have one, or even if they told you the truth and you told you you could have two, then you might drink four, or you might botch it, or you might misremember the number. So doctors are really, really careful when they give advice to people, and they're also not very specific. They want to just say things in general, like, well, let's do less saturated fats, or let's do, you know, so doctors... Um, I don't think it's conspiratorial or anything like that, but but doctors just try to give you general advice. And on the low-carb thing, it's not like if you told people, yeah, you can eat all these fats and stuff, then they're, they're probably just going to go eat, and they're probably going to also still eat the carbs, right. and then they're going to eat donuts, and they're going to have fats. So fats are real dangerous when you have a lot of fats and you have a lot of carbs. So if you cheat, if you're doing a low-carb diet and you cheat, then you're really messing up. Because mm-hmm. now you're just you're really eating a lot of calories, and the carbohydrates are going to be turned into fat too, and so that's really dangerous. So you need to take a real disciplined approach if you're going to do low carbs. So it's going to take a while to get it in people's heads and get the counterintuitive stuff, you know, out of the way. So it's really in the long term, it won't be about the Atkins diet or the South Beach diet or the Paleo diet. It'll be about understanding food science as a culture better, right. and we'll be on the way to that in a, in a couple decades. But yeah, I I would like to. Uh, Talk to some people that have a little bit more knowledge about it instead of me giving – maybe I'm out of place here giving people financial and nutritional advice. I might just stick to music, but I appreciate doing the questions. This has been pretty fun to do. Yeah, the the good news is, uh, you know, all of this just opens up uh, more avenues for more guests. Mm -hmm. Well, these are good questions too. I want to point out the questions that are good are ones that maybe the answer would benefit other people because I'm I'm critical of bad questions. The bad questions are like – what do you like boxers or briefs yes and no answers it could be on twitter or personal inside things that nobody would care about those are the bad questions but these are actually really good i'm i'm happy that people have some semi intelligent questions that have answers that could be could at least theoretically be interesting or useful to other people so thank you guys for the questions if you want to send more in maybe we'll do this again sometime if it wasn't utterly boring you can hashtag uh ask matt anything and so, yeah, put this episode, I'm going to put this episode out tonight. Let's just put this up right away. Keep moving. This will be the second one this week. And then next week, I'll be in California with Emory Acoustic Shows. If you want to come see me, come say hey. Go to emoryacoustic.com. Check out the Bad Christian Podcast. Support this podcast and all the other ones out there if you feel like it. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of a boring episode like this. See you all soon. Yeah! That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware, when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, 
And I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.